Welcome to Walking in Faith, a weekly podcast dedicated to examining the Bible to help lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God expand their faith and understanding by exploring God's Word. Now let's join Pastor Rob Currington as he shares this week's message. So good to see you as we come and open up the next chapter, chapter 13, 1 through 9, where Jesus preaches and teaches and warns, repent or perish. First, think of the word comparison. What do you think of the word comparison? Comparison is something that you and I do every day, multiple times actually, every day. Whether it's shopping for groceries, clothing, cars, or even gas stations, we engage in making comparisons. Comparison is the function of an adverb or an adjective that is used to indicate degrees of superiority or inferiority in quality, quantity, or intensity. So we're always saying, should I buy this one? What's the best price for it? For the bang for the buck? Or what is the comparison we want to make? What is it that we want to buy or spend our time on? It could be on television shows. It could be on movies. It could be how we spend our time just generally. But we're all making comparisons each and every moment, many times, without even thinking about it. We all have different methods of making those comparisons. It can be on price or functionality or the quality of what we're trying to compare. And even convenience to me, when I look as a man, I, when men go into the store, they're not necessarily looking for price, maybe for function or even quality. They're just wanting to get in and get out. You know, this fits, I'm out of here. Uh, and women have a little bit of tendency to do a little, they're wiser and have better discernment in these areas many times than men, other than gas. Men are a little bit more uh, forward. So I'm not paying that much. But these are the types of things in which we make comparisons. Making compar- comparisons uh, helps us make good and wise decisions. So it is something we should be doing. But unfortunately, we also use comparisons to harshly judge others or to generosity or generously justify ourselves. In doing so, we fail to love our neighbors as ourselves, and many times we're guilty of misjudging them, forgetting Scripture's warning in Matthew 7 that with the judgment you pronounce on others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use to compare others, it will be measured or compared to you. So we must be careful with our comparisons, with our judgments. Now, as we open our Bible to Luke 13, the good doctor continues recording the interactions, the instructions, and the itinerary of Jesus as he's making his way to Jerusalem and his divine appointment at Calvary, at the cross. Facing his imminent betrayal, trial, and torture, and death, he, Jesus, is using his time wisely in preparing his disciples for that day when he will be resurrected and ascended up to glory and claim his rightful place, sitting at the right hand of God the Father, where he is now advocating and praying for you and I. Amen. What a wonderful thought, by the way. That's not the message, but just what a wonderful thought. He has the right hand of God. Praying and advocating for you and I. Today's passage, Jesus is confronted with a question that many wonder and ask themselves. They, they're searching for this answer, and that question is, does, uh, <coughs> excuse me, is, do those who suffer from sickness, disease, accidents, and other types of tragedy, th- does that indicate that they are worse sinners and deserving 
of the adversity and calamity that they are experiencing. The ancient world, like many today, believed that human suffering and natural disasters and the like were due to the sins of the individual, of the family, or of the tribe, or of the nation. Greek mythology depicts this in their stories in which the gods would inflict men and women with various ailments for their lack of worship or lack of obedience or just maybe even out of spite. But Jesus here, as we open up chapter 13 and verse 1 of Luke, clearly and concisely answers their speculations by stating that everyone is a sinner and that all will perish. No one can escape the final day of judgment before the Lord of all of creation. So with us, pray, Father, so give us your wisdom as we open up this 13th chapter. We thank you for Luke and his faithfulness of being used by the Holy Spirit to record these events of Christ, these words of Christ, the attitudes that, that show the doctrine that we're going to see here. Father, that you have preserved him through time, and now here we have them in transmission in our copy of your word, and that they're sufficient and they're clear, and that it's necessary for us, for our godliness and holiness. So let us respect your word, let us listen attentively, and Lord, may you just do a work in which we respond to your call to repent or perish that warning. We thank you for your goodness and your love for us, your name. Amen. So with that, we're in Luke chapter 13. Let's begin reading verse 1. Again, I want to encourage you to bring your Bibles. We'll get one to you if you need one. This first part is going to be on the monitor. If you do not have one. Luke writes, there was some present at that very time. So we're still moving from that instance where Jesus is talking to disciples with a large crowd. Remember, a vast crowd is around and listening. And you remember last week that Jesus now turns to the crowd and begins to answer some of their questions. It says at the same present time that uh, there were some about him that told him about the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered in verse 2, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than any other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, unless, uh, but tell you, but unless you repent, you will likewise perish just as those Galileans. Look at verse 4. Or those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No. Jesus says, I tell you that unless you repent, you will all likewise perish just as they did. That's my addition to that, by the way. Not much is known about these two events, circumstances that's mentioned in this passage. By the crowd and by Jesus. They seem to be actual events, though, as they occurred in the first century. However, they did not survive in any Jewish or Roman historical record. So we can't go into much observation about them, other than what we have in Scripture. But what it seems is that we see that there were some Galileans who were sacrilegiously killed by Pilate. Most likely, these were zealots who were looking to overturn Pilate and the Roman governor and the over Roman Empire. And as they made their way to Jerusalem to give sacrifices, which many of them would do, as they would sacrifice to God before starting their rebellion or their attack or whatever it might be, it seems like Pilate had come to an understanding or some way got the, the word that this is what they were doing and killed them right there and then took their blood and mingled it with the blood of goats and bulls and offered it up with the sacrifices. 
The people most likely assumed that since these people died in such a blasphemous way, and this would have been a very blasphemous, wicked uh, deed, that they must have been very wicked and deserving of this death by the hate of the Roman government. It's not so much that they died, but they died at the hands of their enemy. In their view, though they may have been Jewish zealots fighting for the freedom of Jewish, the Jewish nation and the Jewish people, their demise was due to their sinfulness and that God did not show them favor by withholding victory from them and giving them defeat instead. Many times that's how it was. His God was bigger than my God. God withhold favor because you weren't successful. Lord, I pray that what's ever going on out there is good for those of you who may be watching us. There's lots of sirens and fire and fire engines behind us. Jesus answers this question, this comparison, this misjudgment. Uh, it may be a comparison with another group that suffered death. Jesus responds about the 18 killed by a tower that fell either during some construction or some other tragedy. Maybe it was an earthquake or something, and 18 people died. This was a large uh, portal or porch and there, where there was a pool and somehow something fell and killed 18 men and women. Don't know exactly who it was, but 18 people. The context and the background of this discussion, we've got to go back, is with Jesus and his accusation that they lacked discernment to recognize him as Messiah, that they had been searching and praying for. For see, Jesus last week we saw, says you lack discernment. So they are upset that he has called them hypocrites and they're struggling with his cost of the call to follow him. And like Adam and Eve and Cain and the rest of humanity, they responded by justifying, hey, wait a second, we are not as bad as others. Look, look at these people. They must be worse sinners than we are. Of course, they always pick the worst of the worst comparing themselves, do they not? We do so today. Well, he must be like Hitler, right? That seems to be the go-to today. If you're Hitler, then you're just the worst of the worst. He's the standard by which the most evil is given, whether it's culturally, politically, whatnot. And that's what these people are doing. They're trying to justify themselves. Well, you think we're bad. What about those Galileans? What, what about those? And Jesus said, well, what about those guys? These guys died because they didn't do anything wrong, right? They just died. Does that mean that they were worse sinners? Yet many still today still question why some suffer more than others. They themselves have this same attitude. Some who masquerade as modern-day prophets will proclaim that modern tragedies today are signs of God's judgment on certain segments of people or cities or nations. You might recall that some said that AIDS was God's judgment on the homosexual. Some modern similarities include, but are not limited, to the attack on the Twin Towers in 2001, Hurricane Katrina in 2005, the Minneapolis Interstate 35 bridge collapse in 2007, the devastating tornado damage in Mayfield, Kentucky. I believe where, where uh, Matthew has many relatives just last year. Or maybe even the one in Ukraine. Where they, must be, they must be worse sinners because of what happened to them. Is in the mind of many people. Again, unfortunately, many pastors or so-called preachers will then make judgments and say, see, they are more guilty. 
This thinking is, is clear even when the disciples, early in Jesus' ministry, when they were walking with Jesus and they see the blind man that we talked about in John chapter 9. He had been blind by birth, but as he passed away, Jesus saw a blind man, I'm reading from John 9, who had been blind from, the birth, from birth. And the disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Isn't there sometimes in your own life when you see someone that's devastated or someone who's struggling, or maybe even yourself, you think, what did they do wrong or what did I do wrong? I must deserve this punishment because I haven't confessed sin or something's wrong with me or something's wrong with me. We do it many times when we look at the homeless or those that have lack of economic goods or people in other countries, immigrants. We compare ourselves, we misjudge. They must be worse than us. The crowd is using the tragedy of the Galileans to justify their own self-righteousness, and that's what we do ourselves. We're making comparisons to lift ourselves up. We must be more righteous than they, they believe. Which does bring up a new question. Does suffering, tragedies, catastrophes, and accidents, does that indicate the guilt or severity of one's sin? But instead of confirming their error, the error in their worldview, Jesus confronts instead their understanding and condemns their prideful assumptions that they were more righteous than those who suffer. John MacArthur notes that Christ challenged the people's notion that they were morally superior to those who suffered in such catastrophes. You see, what we're going to hear and learn now is several doctrines today. The first one that you and I are going to learn is the doctrine of man and sin. The doctrine of man and sin. And this doctrine states that all of humanity has what? Inherited. It's not because of who we are or what we've done, but just because we are born, we have inherited the guilt of Adam's sin, number one, and the corruption of our nature. So we inherited two things, the guilt of Adam's sin and the corruption of our nature. And by the way, that's why Christ came, is to take care of those two inherited uh, things, the guilt and the corruption of our nature. Wayne Grumman defines, you'll see here again on the screen, as a failure, you find sin as a failure to conform to God's law, God's moral law, and our actions, our attitude, and our nature. Again, we've talked about this before. There are many times we look at people and we say, well, look at their sin. Look at the things they're doing. Even scripture even says a child is known by his actions. Look at their sins, the things that they do. Let's, let's do some behavior modification. And that may work for a while, but even then, you're still not doing with the attitude of the heart. A child may obey you, but in his heart, he is just steaming and scheming of what he's going to do. Why? Because even an attitude, you know, you need an attitude adjustment still isn't going to work. You cannot spank that attitude out of him. You really can't discipline that attitude. You can modern, you can modify it so way, but in the end, we need to change the nature. We cannot change that nature. It's inherited. The leopard can't change his spots. Scripture says the Ethiopian cannot change the color of his skin. 
But we have a world today in which everyone wants to change the very things they inherited. And I'll just let that go right off the top. Change your Bibles and turn to Romans 3. <coughs> Their questions and belief display more lack of discernment of the things that they should have known from a young age. So in other words, as they made this way to justify themselves, they just dig their hole deeper when Jesus says you lack discernment. In Romans chapter 3, the Old Testament is going to be summarized here because the Old Testament teaching on sin is summarized in this passage. These are things that they should have known from a young age. Read silently with me at verse 9 of Romans chapter 3. Paul says, what then? Are Jews, are we Jews any better off? He's talking about salvation. Talking about sin. And he says, we Jews, we have the Old Testament. We have the scriptures. We are the chosen children of God. Aren't we better? Aren't we better off? What does Paul say? No. Not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As written. Now here's where he's going to quote. So you may see them in, in, in quotes. You may also see little letters in your Bible that tells you where those Old Testament references are. You may want to make note of that and read them later. But he says, as it is written, none is righteous, no not one. <clears throat> no one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of ass is under their lips. The mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. What we're seeing here is the doctrine that all of humanity has inherited the guilt of Adam and the corruption of our nature. We have failed to uh, conform to God's moral law in our actions and our attitudes and our nature. And Scripture continues to declare in Romans 3 that there is no distinction. We talked about this word earlier in, the, in our adult work class. That there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The Bible teaches us in Ephesians and other portions of Scripture that all of humanity is futile in their thinking. They are hostile in their mind towards God. They are darkened in our minds, and we are alienated from the life of God. We must understand this. We are described as children of wrath, disobedient children, and children of Satan. Scripture lays out the charges. And he declares the verdict that all are guilty and without excuse in the courtroom of Christ. This verdict leads us to Christ's warning that a great disaster awaits those that are, that awaits those. It is coming in verse 5 when he says, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. If you thought what happened to the Galileans were bad, if you think that what happened at Siloam was a tragedy, if you believe the Twin Towers is something that we must remember and never forget, if we think about those who died in a tornado, then you and I need to recognize that something worse is coming. And unless we do something, we too will suffer. To perish. He says you will likewise perish. To perish means to destroy like an inanimate object. 
to kill by taking a life. We're caused to lose, to die, or perish. It's violence and strife is often the associated mean. This perish is not a not a, little, uh, a passive verb. It, it is something that's active. We think of perish, we don't think of something kind and gentle. This is the doctrine of the final judgment, eternal punishment. That's the second doctrine we see here. Final judgment and punishment. Take your Bibles and turn to Revelation 20. Last book of the Bible. Almost the last chapter here, the last. Revelation 20. <clears throat> Paul writes that the wages of our sin of our inherited guilt and corruption. Our failure to conform to God's law. But the wages or the penalty of that is death. Perish. The prophet Ezekiel declares the word of God when he writes, The soul who sins shall die. Yes. In Revelation 20, the apostle John has given a vision of the future judgment. Look down with me in verse 11. But read this John's vision. He says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away. There's fear. There is a turning away. There is, there is a cowering. But no place was found for them. In 12, John says, I saw the dead, the great and the small. It doesn't matter who they were in life, how much money, how much power. Both great and small were standing before the throne. And the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in those books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. You cannot flee from God, even those who have already died. If they perish in the ocean, they will too stand before God. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. There's nothing that will keep them from this time. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades was thrown into the lake of fire. That's what perishment means there. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. I'm going to give some an illustration that may not be very clear or all together biblical, but it's just a metaphor. You can imagine standing from God and there's two books, the book of our works and the book of life. And he starts to say, and he starts to give the charge of every thought, everything that we have done that is wicked and evil and rebellion against God. Could you imagine just the list of what that would be? Tremendous. And then when he lists the charge against us, he goes to the other book. He says, are they in the book of life? But as his fingers goes down, he goes by name by name by name. And looks up and says, your name is not found in this book. There's been no atonement. You never repented. You stand judged by what you've done. Now what we've done is to do a church who spent eternity in the light of fire. Theologian Louis Burkhoff wrote to find that the, of the final judgment, you see it here, 
Since the final judgment will serve the purpose of displaying before all rational creatures, speaking of men and women, the declarative glory of God in a form and forensic act, meaning in the form in which we do things in the forensic or how we did them, which magnifies on one hand his holiness and righteousness, evil cannot stand before him. On the other hand, his grace and mercy. His righteousness and holiness stands in comparison to our works. And we see his mercy and grace in over life. This is a sobering doctrine that should cause all of us to pause and consider our response to Christ. It should motivate us to proclaim, excuse, excuse me, the message of Christ to our loved ones, to our neighbors and co-workers. Could you imagine standing before our loved ones, our co-workers, our neighbors, and as we're standing there, we're listening and hearing the charge of, of, against us. And when they say that your name is not written in the book of life, they turn to us and see that ours is, and they would look to us and say, why did you not tell us? Why did you not share with us? Final resting place for all of those who declare guilty is hell. Rain Grubin defines hell as a place of eternal conscious punishment for the wicked. Eternal conscious punishment. There is no soul sleep which we die, there's no which sense in which we it ends. It's eternal, forever. It's conscious. We are awake. We, are, we know what is going on. We can feel the pain. We can feel the wrath of God coming down upon us. Now remember that all of us fall into that category because we are all have inherited that guilt and that corruption. One other point Jesus is making here is that all of the disasters and wars and tragedies and sufferings is caused by sin. And it all points to the eternal punishment that awaits all the sinners of the day of judgment. Why do these things happen? Why do tragedies happen? Why do natural disasters? Why, why are we having wars? Why is my body wet with, with aches and pains? Dr. Schreiner states, Dr. Schreiner states this. Every wrinkle on our bodies, I tell you, I am giving up. <laughs> is a parable reminding us of the consequences of sin. Every disease is a wake-up call telling us that there is something wrong with the world. Every ache and every pain is a signal we have sinned. So why did the Galileans die? Why did the tower fall on Shalom? Why, why is there war in Ukraine? <coughs> Why, why are some of our members just sick today? What, what about COVID? It is to remind us that there is a day of judgment and punishment coming because of sin. Some of the sin is man-made. Some of it is just uh, natural disasters. But all of it is from the hand of God to point to us, to remind us that there is something more than just enjoying this life. It's the point to sin and the consequences of our sin. This brings up the third doctrine. 
He says, you likewise, because you are all sinners, you will likewise perish. But there's a third doctrine that's found in our passage today, and that's conversion. Wayne Grumman defines conversion as our willing response to the gospel call, in which we sincerely repent of our sins and place our trust in Christ for salvation. Jesus declares that the only solution to escape this upcoming disaster is to repent. Unless you repent, you will likewise perish. You must repent. The only solution for our sin is to be judged by a holy God. To escape the wrath of God is to repent. Again, Dr. Schreiner notes that all must cling to Christ as our only hope in that day of judgment and in the deeds of repentance. John the Baptist boldly warned the hypocritical religious leaders during his ministry, you brood of vipers, he calls them, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? They, they understood that there was an oncoming judgment and they wanted to flee from it. He goes on to say, though, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. In other words, you and I must live a life that bears fruit, that repentance must be shown. Professor Thomas Schreiner again writes that Israel here must repent and bear fruit before the hour of judgment arrives. That's what Jesus is telling this crowd that is trying to justify themselves and make themselves look good by comparing themselves to the worst of the worst. Jesus says, no. We must repent, but as you and I know, that the majority will reject him. To repent means to change any or all of the elements composing of one's life. It's, it's changing our attitudes, our thoughts, our behaviors, concerning the demands of God for right living. It, it's looking and saying that these are the things that are good, to see that the Bible is good, that the way of Christ is good. It's to taste and see that God is good. Repentance is the message of the Old Testament prophets. It was, the, it was the message of John the Baptist. It was the message of Jesus and the message of the disciples and apostles. It is the same message that you and I are to proclaim. Now usually when we think of repentance or the call to repent, you and I conjure up images of maybe a guy in the desert just eating locusts and honey, wild out crazy saying, repent, repent, repent. Or you might think of that half-crazed man with a sign that's walking around the sidewalk in a crown that says, repent, the end of the world is near. Or you might think of a preacher yelling to his congregation, turn or burn, turn or burn. Some of you might have some bad experiences of those types of things. Often, it is taught as something that you and I can conjure up ourselves, or if we have enough self-discipline and strong will, then we can just then, you know, deny ourselves, right? It's just something that we can do. However, Scripture tells us that godly sorrow amounts to nothingness. Godly, I'm sorry, worldly sorrow, so sorrow that leads to death. But it's a godly sorrow that leads to life. There are even some today, sadly, that will preach and teach that repentance is no longer necessary. That all one has to do is make some form of mental assent to the facts of Christ to see forgiveness of sin and eternal security. I pray that there is none of you 
that have accepted Christ just on the fact that, well, I just believe in Jesus. Jesus believes in me, that's all I need to do. Let me share with you, that is not enough. You must repent. That is not my command. It is not my direction. It is the words of Christ himself. So far from the truth. Easy believism is the old term. Just believe for one moment the facts of Christ and never change your life and you're okay. They're going to go there. They're going to go there. Scripture teaches us that repentance, repentance is a gift of grace given by God to hearts sinners. It's not something that you and I can share, but it's a gift of grace. That's why he calls for us and he tells us to pray for repentance, that the Father may grant us repentance. Remember Jacob, I love, and Esau, I hated? Esau sought repentance but never found it. Why? Because he was never given that gift of grace. It is not of your own. It's also a gift of grace by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. See, you and I need the Holy Spirit to come in and change our minds and hearts. Remember, we've inherited corruption of guilt and corruption. And until the Holy Spirit comes in and regenerates our heart and gives us repentance and changes our mind, we would never turn towards the things of God. We would taste and see that God is yucky. We don't want it. We would spit it out. Maybe some of you have spent some of your life doing that very thing. Maybe even today. You hear the word of God, read the word of God today, and sometimes, many times, you just spit it out and say, I don't want any of this. You may have repented at one time, but you're not living a life of repentance. So a gift, it's a gift of grace given by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. Number three, it's a gift of grace given through the proclamation of the message of Jesus Christ. How can they be saved? How will they know to repent? By the proclamation, the preaching the teaching of the Word of God. Amen? Amen. How will they hear unless the preacher is sent? How will they hear unless someone speaks? Speaking in Isaiah and Romans chapter 10, I believe. You and I must understand that repentance is a gift. Unless the Father gives it, it won't come. Unless the Spirit moves and regenerates the heart of the born again, the wind blowing, our hearts stay hardened against him. Unless we hear and read the message of Christ, we would never know the good news of the gospel. Unfortunately, too many people have tried to justify themselves by declaring their own righteousness, just like these, this crowd, these men and women that are speaking of Jesus. Or they try to purchase it through observing religious rites and traditions. <laughs> Which is sad. You, you can't do that. We just found a, 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 for our Catholic friends that are in Phoenix because a guy switched pronouns and used the wrong pronouns that everyone that he baptized over the last few decades are now not going to heaven. Their marriages are, are not really uh, 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 legal in the eyes of the church. Why? Because they're trying to purchase something that cannot be purchased. Can't get through observing religious rites and traditions. Or securing it through other means that, have, that are futile and have no eternal value. Let's consider the illustration of an archer. Get your mind of an archer, you know, a man with a bow, right? And an arrow. 
Maybe you know, down there is where the target is. It's been said that the word sin in the Greek and Hebrew gives the connotation of sin is missing the mark. Just as an archer, as, he, as he's shooting for the target, he lets the arrow fly, but he misses the mark. It's the background of the word sin. Using this illustration to think about sin and reconciling ourselves to God, <coughs> excuse me, through man-made traditions. Let me say that once again. See if I can get it out without a cough. Using this illustration to think about sin and reconciling ourselves to God through man-made traditions, observing rituals, and so on and so forth. In this scenario, we find that it's futile. We see that no matter the quality of the bow, no matter the straightness of the arrow, no matter the power in the arm of the archer to pull that bow back, no matter the keenness of the archer's eyes to see the target, no matter how big the target may be, and no matter how close you get to the target, here's what you find is that the archer still misses the target. That's self-righteousness. That's living a life without repentance. The only way to be reconciled to God <clears throat> is to repent of our sins and to put our trust that God has accepted the work of Christ on our behalf. No amount of self-work will justify us in the eyes of God or the court of Christ at the day of a judgment. The necessity of repentance is the message again of the Old Testament prophets, of John the Baptist, of Jesus and the apostles. Today, you and I are commanded to call everyone that we know to repentance, that they may have eternal life and escape the wrath of God, reserved for all those who have rejected and rebelled against his rule and authority. Now, that's difficult, right? That seems arrogant. The exclusivity of Christ you, you mean I must change my mind? I, I must then follow him? I, I, you mean it's going to cost me something? It's difficult to preach and teach. And sure, we should do it in a winsome way, in a way that's gentle, in a way that leads others to that repentance. However, Jesus is not done, and I think you and I can now see how we can proclaim this message this proclamation in a way that is loving and kind. Jesus is not done addressing the crown. We still have Luke, Luke 13, 6 through 10 or 9. So look with me at verse 6. And Jesus continues and he told this parable. He's going to submit it now. He wants them to understand something. A man had a fig tree and he planted it in his vineyard. And he came seeking fruit on it and found none. Now, that's not like, I have a lemon tree in my, in, my, in my place. That thing just grows them like crazy. I can't pick them fast enough. They can't fall in the ground fast enough. They can't rot fast enough. I mean, just, that tree just explodes with fruit. And, and that's what you and I would expect. Maybe you've had a tree that doesn't produce fruit, and you would be angry with that tree. You, you would not want that tree there. You would do all you could to get it to produce fruit, or you would just replace it. And that's what we're finding here. And so the vineyard man, the one who owns it, in verse 7, came to the vine dresser. He says, look, for three years now, I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. He's angry. He's frustrated. He says, cut it down. Why should I use up the ground? And the vineyard, the man who tends the garden, 
answered him, Sir, let this tree alone this year also, until I dig around it and put it on manure and put on it manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. So he says, give me an extension to him. I know for three years, it has not provided any fruit for you. And you are right. You own this land and you want to, you put in that land, a tree that's going to do what you want it to do. But, but give me one more year. Let me, let me do some work on it. This parable Jesus is telling them demonstrates God's patience, kindness, and mercy in delaying judgment. This is important for you and I to understand. Because repentance does see judgment. But in here we also see the grace of God because he says, I am going to delay judging you. You all have inherited sin and incorruption. But the first time you sin, I have the right as a holy God to take your life and to hold you in justice. But God says, no, I'm going to delay it. Have you ever wondered why God allows you to continue to sin? You ever wonder why in the world is God not taking me yet? If God gave me life, can he not take my life? Job learned that. The Lord gives, the Lord takes. But why is it that he allows the wicked to prosper? Psalms or Proverbs ask that. Why is he allow Putin and people like him, these despots, these people full of tyranny, why does he allow them to continue? Why does he just allow a little boy or a little girl to defy their mom and dad or even us? You see, verses 8 and 9 demonstrate a hope. That a little patience and kindness will bring tree to that fruit. Don't cut it down. Let, let, me, let me serve it. Let me, let me feed it with some manure. Let me cut around it and, and prune it. Maybe a little tender love and kindness will help that tree to grow fruit. Give, give, me, give me one more year. The man could say, no, I've given it three years. It should have been starting producing fruit three years ago. But no. God says, I'm going to give you a little bit of grace and mercy. Multiple Old Testament texts describe Israel as a fig tree. So the people reading this passage or hearing Jesus speaking would have clearly gone back to Isaiah 5 where Jesus gives, or where uh, the Old Testament prophet gives a parable of the fig tree in which God judges them before not producing fruit. It would clearly be in their mind of those listening to his parable. They would recognize the accusations in his words. Yet the parable in Luke 13 gives us hope that in the day of judgment will be delayed in order to give people time to repent and reconcile with God. In 2 Peter, Peter, excuse me, chapter 3, 9 through 10, you see this on the monitor. Peter writes, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness. But look at this. You may want to underline this in your Bible if you have it. But is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should what? Reach what? Repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. We spoke about this several weeks ago. And then the heavens will pass away at the roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. The earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. 
We always joke about that. The climate change people are all concerned about the world and how we're destroying the government or destroying the, the earth. Just take a moment and look and see what God's going to do to it. But God is patient. He's delaying his judgment, even on you today. Even on the Christian today, you too will stand before him, not to judgment, but for faithfulness. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. You and I, our works also will be burned. And he says, I pray that it's gold, jewel, and, and precious stones, or wood, hay, and stubble. Sometimes I wonder, Jesus, why don't you just take me? I can't believe you allow me to live day by day with the struggles and the battles I have and the times I fail. But then I remember, know that God's delay is meant to show me his grace and mercy, to lead me to repent, to confess of my sin. And you and I need to recognize this. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 2, if you have enough time to get there real quick. Look at verse 3. Romans chapter 2. Paul writes, do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, speaking of all the things that were given in Romans 1, the, 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 the rebellion against God, and yet you do them themselves, do you think that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Do you not know that God's kindness is meant to lead you to what? Repentance. But because of your hard and impotent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of truth or the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. God's kindness given to us in delaying that judgment is lent to lead us to him. The suffering that you and I are engaged in or we endure is to point to that final day. In summary, we find three doctrines that are going to teach three points. Number one, Jesus declares that all are sinners and will face punishment. We must understand that. Number two, Jesus warns that they must seek reconciliation with God through repentance before the day of judgment. Remember that the delay is happening, but you must do it quickly. Come before them before you get to the court. Remember that what we saw the parable last week of two men going down to the magistrate. And then number three, God gives grace and mercy by delaying judgment against those that have rebelled against his rule and authority. And he does that for a specific reason, so that the word of Christ may go throughout the whole world. And you and I are called as ambassadors of Christ to fulfill that commission. This passage, as we're getting near the end, this passage calls you and I to slow down in our busy life and consider our own soul. Do you ever consider your own soul? Are you healthy? Let me ask you, is your soul well? Instead of comparing ourselves to the worst of the worst, we are to evaluate ourselves to the standard that's found in God's word. We are to consider that God will punish all sinners unless they repent and turn in faith to Christ. The time we have left on this earth should be in service to our Lord, 
who has commissioned us to proclaim the message of repentance and reconciliation. One truth that you and I must also consider is that the grace and mercy found through repentance in the gospel is that of changed lives. We spoke about this very quickly earlier in the message. The Apostle Paul gives thanks to God when writing to the church of Colossae in Colossians chapter 1, 4 through 6. You'll see it here on the monitor. Look at what he says. We have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. Oh, how I, how I would love for, for, for our missionaries and for those who know our church, when they hear of Orangeville Bible Church, they say, we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all of God's people. What a, what a wonderful testimony. May that be true of us today. But he goes on, it's because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. That, that's why they have faith. That's why they love. He says, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel which has come to you as indeed in the whole world. It is bearing fruit and increasing. And his prayer is, as it also does among you. Let it also be said, of those who attend and members of OBC, that we are bearing fruit of repentance and it's increasing. Since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth. What was the time, what was the moment in which you heard the word of God and understood it and repented? If you have not had that time, then come to repentance today. Maybe this be the day of salvation for you. Please come, repent, turn towards him and put your faith and trust in the works of Christ. You cannot earn it. You will be an archer who will miss the target each and every time. And when you are evaluated for what you've done, you will be found guilty and will perish for all time in eternal conscience punishment. Let that not be said of you. Let that not be said of those who hear me or watch me later. But let us also get that word out to those we love. The question many may wonder as they battle sin. This is a question I ask. Have I truly repented? Is my repentance true? I continually sin. I continue to fall. So am I truly repentant? Do I truly have godly sorrow or is it just worldly sorrow? Am I sorry for what I did, but I'm not truly wanting to change? J.C. Ryle, a British pastor in the 19th century, notes five marks of repentance. We'll go through this. Hold with me if you could. Take a picture of it. Take a note of this. First, true true repentance begins with the knowledge of sin. We must recognize that we're sinners. It produces a sorrow for sin. It recognizes that that we have rebelled and that we have gone against a holy God. It produces a confession of sin, recognizing, yes, I am a sinner. I need a savior, not a life coach, not not a life motivator. I I just don't need more self-discipline and self-control, which may be true. But no, I need a savior. It's the breaking off of sin. The things I used to do, I do them no more. He says, why should you do these things or approve of them? It's because of these things, these people will not inherit eternal life. 1 Corinthians 6. And lastly, it's a deep hatred of sin. It's recognizing That sin comes at a high cost. It is destroying lives. It is destroying marriages. It is ripping apart families. It is destroying the minds of our children. It is uh, uh, infiltrating our culture and paralyzing Christians. 
You and I, I need to hate sin. We need to recognize it for what it is. Instead of making friends with it, we need to hate it with all of our fiber. And I'm here to tell you that we do not hate sin enough because we have not yet calculated and understood the cost of sin in our own lives and the sin of our family and our friends. Unless you repent, you will likewise perish. This is the heart and the mind, the attitude of those who have truly repented. Is this a struggle? Yes. Will we feel this way each and every time? No. But we must pray that God will give his grace of repentance to us. Let us commit to a lifetime repentance as the cost of following Christ, using our time wisely and sharing the good news of the gospel as we await that final day of judgment for sinners and a day of reward for those who are faithful. In this passage, we see law. Unless you repent, you will likewise, replay, uh, likewise uh, perish. But we also see God's wonderful grace and mercy that repentance will save us from that day of calamity. And he's delaying that day to give us time to taste and see that God is good. Would you do so today? If not, would you commit to sharing that good news with others? Let us never stand before the judgment of God and see our family and friends one by one go into eternity without Christ. Let us do all that we can. As Paul says, I'm compelled to preach Christ crucified. There we head bowed and everybody closed. I'm going to ask the worship team to go ahead and come on up. Landon has a prayer for us this morning. I just want you to take a moment to pause and to consider this passage of Scripture and the words I've shared. And may the Holy Spirit separate the chaff and the wheat, the Word of God from maybe my frivolous statements. I pray that it all works in such a way that the Holy Spirit will take and work it not only this morning, but also through the week. Consider, I would encourage you to sit and talk with your family, as you're with, your, with your wife, with your, with, your, with, uh, with your children, maybe at work. Read this scripture, meditate on it. For even our children will likewise perish unless they repent. May God be glorified in all that we do. We hope you have enjoyed this week's message. We encourage you to share it with others. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at info at orangevilla.org. Be sure and join us for next week's message by subscribing to this podcast. To learn more about our ministry, submit prayer requests, or to find ways you can help hear the gospel, visit us online at orangevilla.org. Till next time, we hope the grace and peace of God's love be ever present in your life.